0: Welcome to Season 4 of the RMBC Live Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here.
1: Today's episode concludes our three-part series exploring what it's like to be a parent or a person with close children in their lives while living with MBC. We covered this issue back in 2020 when we first started this podcast, and we'll continue to cover this issue. It's often the first thing that people think about when they're first diagnosed, and it's often the first thing that concerns us when we begin to decline from this yet-to-be-cured disease. Our series had our podcast team chat about what this has meant to us as we navigate treatment, work, relationships, and parenting. Then we wanted to dedicate a whole episode just to the voices of the children who are impacted by this. We wanted to also speak to the experts who have made it their mission to help parents just like ourselves. First, we hear from co-host Martha Carlson's interview with Dr. Eliza Park. Dr. Park is a psychiatrist, clinical researcher, and deputy director for the Comprehensive Cancer Support Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We knew she would be an important person to speak with, given the goal of her research to improve mental health and quality of life for parents with cancer and their family members. Here's Martha.
2: What brought you to wanting to work with people living with metastatic breast cancer? That's
3: a good question. I would say that it was a little bit of an accidental journey. I always have loved the intersection of kind of medicine and mental health. And so I kind of always knew that I wanted to be in that space. But I don't think I had any idea that I would find this work until I started actually just meeting individuals living with cancer and living with anesthetic cancer in particular when I was in training and just found it to be such a gift to spend time, work with them that it stuck with me. And I ended up working with parents in particular because of, in part because of my colleagues here at UNC who had already been working some in this space. But I think we just found that there's substantial room for it. Improvement in how we can support individuals as they live with metastatic disease, I personally feel that you know if we want to improve the lives of individuals who live with metastatic cancer, you know, who thankfully will for long periods of time, then we really need to better understand and support all of the things that are important to them outside of the hospital that yet are really strongly linked to their experience of life and illness and quality of life. That's kind of my long minute answer of how I found myself
2: here so. I had kids of multiple ages. I think a lot of us have kids of multiple ages. Anything that we should keep in mind when we talk to them about fear and loss, which are like main experiences? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: No small question. (laughs) I guess, first, I think no matter what approach or what a parent ultimately decides to say or not say or do or not do, I do believe, and I think it's important to acknowledge that I think every parent approaches these conversations and decisions from just a place of genuine love. And there is no pain that most parents would not walk through for their child. And the idea that your child has to go through something like fear and loss, I think is exquisitely painful. And I appreciate that parents who are even thinking about this, you know, are doing it under some of the toughest of circumstances. Every kid and every family and every situation is so different. You know, I don't think there's like a, I wish there was a one way fits all situation. And I think age is a good starting place, but I think we all know the impact of temperament as a parent of kids who have wildly different personalities. <laughs> it's a little humbling. I, I have to say, I didn't truly invest in this work until I had my own kids because suddenly I got it in in a way that was emotional and not just on a kind of intellectual, cognitive, kind of academic kind of level. So I, I think a couple of things though to keep in mind before parents even broach these conversations with their kids, I really encourage everyone, you know, whether they have kids or not though, to really get clarity for themselves. And it's, Easier said than done. And there's a lot to that. It starts really with the oncology teams being upfront. There's ways to be clear and compassionate at the same time. The parent being receptive or open to hearing kind of about the range of possibilities and themselves being kind of prepared to even have those conversations with their kids. And then the part that we can sometimes forget is our kids have to be in a good place to hear it. And it's so hard when I feel like we do all this work internally to get ready to have certain discussions or conversations or share information. And it's just not a good time for your kids. And I don't mean like in terms of like band practice or something, but just where they are at that day or that week. There's so many different places in that kind of chain of things that need to happen that being clear internally is the place to start. And then how to have those conversations with the kids is part two, because the kids are more resilient than we are.
2: So when you talk about being clear, you mean prognosis. I think that's what you mean. When you say possibilities, are there other things that could be identified fairly easily for people to be thinking about like in their own like work in being ready mm-hmm. to talk about this? I would say
3: that prognosis is one part of it, but that in itself is imprecise science and it's the rare oncologist who's going to give a number and say that's what's going to happen. And I hope they don't because it's a guess and it's a hypothesis, but it's none of us can predict the future. So, prognosis certainly is one part of it. But I think other parts are all the other things that someone can expect with treatment and with the changes that can happen as someone kind of lives with this disease over time. And clarity about, I think, for themselves, how they handle and cope with that information are the things that I think don't have to be ironclad, figured out. But if you can walk into these conversations having some understanding of that, I think it helps.
2: Yeah. It would be hard to talk about something so serious if you were just responding emotionally, I think.
4: You mentioned the age of the kids is an issue when you start talking to them about difficult topics. And I had a freshman in college when I was diagnosed metastatic. And I assumed that I was talking to an adult when I told him about my prognosis and I was being, you know, I decided that I would be honest with him. And that was absolutely not the right thing to do. And as you said, that you have to judge their emotional state too. It's your diagnosis, but they are not. He was not ready for it at all. And so I'm wondering if all the children... We should also know how to approach them before we just jump into it. I will say that parenting is so hard. I make mistakes every day.
3: And even when we feel like we totally screwed something up, it's usually not so bad. Maybe we might have re- we would prefer to redo something if we had the benefit of, of, of hindsight. But even if we broached it in a way that perhaps we might wish we could undo, it's still a way to learn from that process. And I say that because I think so many parents want to get it right. I think there's a lot of focus and attention on how to describe or to talk about this with the younger kids. And I think certainly there are some very unique challenges to it. But I think I personally feel that it is extraordinarily difficult when you have older kids, when you have teenagers or young adults, because their capacity to understand the full scope of everything is so much more you are no longer their primary source of information for things in life and their brains are still developing
2: my son who was 12 when i tried to talk to him pretty much shut us down and i don't know how Mm -hmm. common that is and what to do in that kind of situation he was not there and it's very hard to try to bring it up again I don't know if, there, if you have any insight into what to do in that kind of situation for people whose kids are yeah. definitely not ready.
3: We know it's so interesting. We have a, a study that we're wrapping up. We developed an intervention for parents where they can help with these conversations. And we had a list of optional topics. And what I was not expecting, but when I look back on it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. The question or the concern that parents most frequently wanted some guidance on was, what do I do when my kid doesn't want to talk? So where it's not so much the parent not being ready, it's the parents would love to talk about this with their kids, but their kids are kind of voting in in a different kind of way. So I, I think it's actually extraordinarily common and it's really frustrating and it's it's hard because I think everyone comes in with these best intentions. So I think about it from like a conceptual way, but also like kind a of just very practical. All right, if this happened, what can I do? And so from a conceptual framework, one of the things that we think about is our ability to acknowledge or to contemplate how serious this illness is or can be varies. And it's not so much a stage as I consider it as more of a, a pendulum. And there are times where we can look at it straight in the eye and it's hard, but we can kind of emotionally tolerate it. And then there's going to be days where it's so exquisitely painful. It's, it, you can't, you just can't stay there. Either extreme is probably not so adaptive because staying in that place and looking at it all the time, I think would be very depressing and scary. And being never able to consider that means not having important conversations or tasks or activities. I think that that pendulum is a very healthy thing and we all do it. I think clinicians do it. We would for the patients that we care for and love. And I think the person who's living with cancer has that experience and our kids do too. What's hard is that everyone has their own kind of tolerance for that swinging and how long they can stay in that space. And for some of us, it's. I think it can evolve over time. It does evolve over time. And for some of us, it We can only kind of really touch it for a little bit. And what's hard for parents is that it's almost like we do ask, and I recommend almost that parents have to be on the ready for those moments, those kind of tidbits when your kids are showing you that they're on that side of the pendulum where they can have or acknowledge some of those conversations. And I think from a more practical standpoint in terms of, that sounds good, but what should I do when I'm trying to have a conversation with my kid? And it's like they they walk out of the room. One thing I will say is that short of a urgent crisis, I don't ever recommend forcing a kid to have a conversation that they don't feel emotionally ready to have. And what's so hard is that for the kids who are never big talkers or who are never were the kind of ones who like to have these kind of conversations, I think we have an obligation to meet our kids where they are in a process, but there's also an obligation to come back to see if it's changed. And I think that's the hard part of, of having to keep on doing it and trying to find those little bits of pieces. A couple of things I do think about, though, are that just from a concrete standard strategies, because I imagine my personality is, that's great but tell me, (laughs) tell me some like tips. Right. So one I would say is, I'm not saying these are necessarily all going to work, but because every kid's different, but some ideas are one is you can try opening up first, right? You can try sharing what's been on your mind and seeing if that is an invitation for them. I think what it's just doing a bit is normalizing some of those emotions. But I do think that we can at least Put it out there and not necessarily say, are you feeling this way? But just you know, saying like, I know that when I think about this, I sometimes feel really uncomfortable with how much I can't necessarily predict the future. You know, I don't think you need to unload all of your worries on your child, but you can at least, that's one way to do so. I think particularly some kids are more equipped than others to be able to describe their feelings or their emotions. A lot of kids, it's, it's like, I, I feel bad. Or I feel mad. And, and so they might just not have the words to necessarily say it. I, I will say that particularly as kids get older, but I guess even with any age, if you're trying to understand where their head is at with something that's bigger, I often think that getting their opinion about a specific change or event typically works better than a, how do you feel about my breast cancer? Even though that's kind of what, what you really want to know, it must've been really disappointing that we had to reschedule your sleepover at your friend's house because I couldn't drive you there because of treatment or, you know, what have you. But kind of tying it to something that affects them or something that they notice that might be important to them is one kind of window into getting some of those kids who don't want to necessarily talk with you about things to talk a bit. Another way can be written notes. feels a little old school, but sometimes that is easier to do than verbally saying things out loud. I was meeting with someone, he was a young, like a older teen or a young adult. One of the things that we devised was they needed his input or opinions on things and he just didn't want to go there. They wrote down some options on a piece of paper and put it next to his door. And all he needed to do was check off. They needed to know whether he wanted to come with them or not. And you know what? That was the way that he felt comfortable doing it. And they were able to learn something important that they needed to know in a way that didn't feel like you wanted to pull out your hair. I guess the other way I might think about it is car rides are, are great because they're a captive audience and they don't have to look at you and you can't look, well, you shouldn't be looking at them because hopefully you should be looking at the road and it's a contained amount of time. And that's like another kind of space where, you know, you don't have to have the biggest conversations, but you can at least just talk and they can look out the window while they tell you, or at least maybe offer some tidbits of information. Sometimes the answer, if they don't really want to say anything or they don't have any questions, when you're like, do you have any questions? You know, is to say like, okay, that's okay. You don't have any questions. We'll check in later and see if you do. Or you could say, okay, you don't have any questions right now. If, you, if any come to you, you, you can ask me or you can ask whether it's your partner or maybe it's their uncle or maybe it's their coach who's kind of in the know. So sometimes it just may not be you. And that, that's hard.
2: Are there any similar messages about NBC that parents can give their children? I think that there
3: are more similarities than differences when we think about how we might want to have these kind of conversations with our kids. There's what we say, but really what I think about is what are the the core things that kids need to not only hear, but to feel and to experience. But it's less about what we specifically say or how we describe one treatment or another, but how we want our, our kids to experience our illness to the extent that we can control one is honesty. And that's, you know, what is honesty? It can mean many different things. The bottom line is that talking with your kid helps to establish trust around important topics. And whether you have teens, we were all teenagers once. And if we grew up around our parents, there's almost this universal sense of they're not telling me everything or they're keeping information from me, right? It, it's just kind of a, it's just a developmental phase. <laughs> um, so I think really the benefit of just communicating in an ongoing way or telling things, even when it's hard information, is that it helps your child feel like they can trust you to be honest with them. And so I think that's one kind of core message. I and mean, what's so hard about MBC is that things are always changing, Right and even when someone's doing great on treatment there's still that up and down of the cycles of the scans the tumor markers and and so things are always changing and i think part of that being honest and establishing trust around that is letting your kids know that you'll keep them updated if things change and i think this applies whether your kid is 5 or whether your kid is 15 or 25 they're going to notice changes and rather than them noticing a change in wondering themselves, and you're not talking about it, I think to the extent that you can be proactive and, and to let them know, I've been honest with you today and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep being straight with you and you can count on me to do that. And, and being straight doesn't mean I'm going to tell you every single detail, but I think it means keeping things updated. I think core message that I think kids need to know or feel is that reassurance that you're getting the help that you need. Hopefully you have trust and a good relationship with your clinical team. It's important to let your kids know that. And if you don't, then that's a bigger separate issue that also needs to be addressed. It's reassuring for your child to know that there are people that you trust who you think are equipped to help you and that they don't have to worry about that happening, that you can say, I've got this, right? On the flip side of that is verbalizing that their needs are important too, and then they're going to continue to be met. And no matter their age, you just want them to keep living their lives. The main reason why parents don't want to talk about this with their child is not because they want to like purposely mislead their child or anything like that at all. They just want their kids to be kids and have a normal, happy lives and do all those things that kids do and there's a real worry that, that maybe this knowledge will disrupt that process. It doesn't have to. And one of the ways is to say that. I still want you to be a kid. All the different things that they like to do. And sometimes saying all the things are going to stay the same that don't change. Good and bad. You still have to do your homework. You still have to set the table. You, <laughs> as well as the fun things, right? And then I think the last kind of overarching message that kids need to feel and why I think talking can be so helpful is that the truth is that this is hard. And to have a sense that this is hard and our family can handle this, however we define our family, that's what really matters. Because we can't really shield our kids from how challenging cancer can be. I wish we could, but we we can't stop life from being Life, but I do think there is a real gift in a child knowing that there can be some really tough things that are happening in this world, but they know that they can still come to you, and that that you have confidence that they can handle hard things that might happen to them, and that you're going to be there to the extent that you can. And it's not just you; it's the other people in your life. Is the kind of feeling or the experience that is fairly universal, regardless of your kid's age, whether they're an adult or an elementary school.
1: Talk to Eliza about how children can cope and live with the concept of uncertainty. This is what she had to say.
3: From our research, we also know that you know, most parents, or at least most mothers, who have metastatic cancer do want to let their children know what they think the outcome of their illness can or might be. And it's not so much a question of do I tell them or not? because no one wants their kid to suddenly wake up one day and just be shocked. It's more about timing, and it's so hard because it's like we're waiting for certainty so that you can then have those kind of conversations with your kids because un- uncertainty is so uncomfortable. You don't want your child to have that experience. It becomes so hard because NBC is a, it's a lesson in uncertainty. there There's so few times when someone can feel certain about something particularly with this disease. But I think this idea of certainty in the first place is a little bit of a fantasy. And and by that, what I mean is that for anyone, a cancer diagnosis is going to be unwelcome news, whether it's for, you know, whether it's happening to you or if it's happening to someone you dearly love. What happens with difficult news is, is that it changes our imagined future trajectory our kind of our fantasy about what kind of life we hope to have. And in that respect, for parents, for anyone really, it's the same disease, right? Metastatic breast cancer, far more common than I think people recognize. And the same stressor of what do I say or what do how I respond or what I do. And and yet every person living with this illness and every kid and every family is going to have a unique story and is going to experience uncertainty in a different kind of way and that's gonna affect how you're gonna frame it. And I do think there is this real tension between certainty, uncertainty versus kind of acknowledgement of how serious something can be. And I I think the truth is that balance is really difficult. All that being said, you have to feel certain to start the conversations with our kids. And I say that because in many ways it's easier if you can start it when things are very uncertain, because it's not appropriate for many, if not most women with metastatic breast cancer to have these conversations or view their conversations through the lens of end of life. Someone could be living for one year, for five years, for 10 to 15. I mean, it's, it's not a straight road. And death happens to everyone. Whether that happens as a result of breast cancer is something we can't necessarily predict, but it's certainly a possibility. And I recognize that for some, it's going to be more possible than others. But I think that when parents are willing to talk about it, I think they can share the possibility of dying along with their commitment to living. And I think that's the way I think about uncertainty. It's not a black and white thing. And you can be uncertain about how treatment's going to go. And you can still describe your situation truthfully and with reassurance. You can help your kid understand the range of possibilities and let them know that does not take away from your hopes for the best possible outcome or your own effort for the best possible outcome. We can say things like, you know, sometimes people with cancer don't get better and I'm doing everything I can to not let that happen because you are so important to me and I love you and I love our lives and other things that are incredibly important. And as kids get older, you can be more direct. You can say things like, some people with my kind of cancer, recover, but most don't. I'm doing everything I can to keep the cancer under control. And for me, that means taking this treatment. You can even anticipate the question, which is that the oncologists are always thinking about three treatment lines ahead. And you can ask them for that information. And you can let your kid know, because that's the question we're all thinking as well. Okay. If that means taking this treatment, and what happens then if that treatment stops working? Because that'd be the question on, on my mind as well. And I think you can say, I'm doing everything I can. And that means taking this treatment. And I want you to know that my cancer team, they already have a plan for the next steps if this one doesn't work as well as we hoped. And you can say, and my goal or my hope or my expectation, depending on whatever fits best, is that they think this is going to be really helpful for me. And I hope it's is helpful. For as long as it can be, though I don't necessarily get to have a choice in that part of it. So I think there's ways of kind of introducing that kind of this concept of that there's uncertainty and and just putting it as a
4: possibility. As you mentioned yourself, some of us do respond to a treatment and we do well on the same treatment. So as we become less vigilant about the next shooter drop, our family becomes less vigilant as well. So. My children often, often said before, oh, you'll be okay. Let's not talk about it. You'll be okay. And after a while, they start really believing it. And we know that uh, it's very unlikely that we will be able to stay on the same treatment forever. So when inevitably we do progress, it's like telling them all over again, the disease has come back. And is there a way to maybe uh, proactively Remind them from time to time that even though they think you'll be okay, you may not be. or oh, that will not work anyway. This actually, I think, comes
3: up more often than we appreciate. In general, what I observe is that I think the society, your friends, your neighbors, your families, there's that period when you first get diagnosed and it's a big deal and you're just getting texted all the time or maybe you're about to have a surgery and like it's on front and center in everyone's mind. and then things go okay. And over time, people forget. It's the fact that you have metastatic breast cancer becomes less scary to other people. And they're not in your body. They're not in your shoes. And depending on how you're feeling physically or emotionally about it, you don't forget it. I mean, there can be moments when that's wonderful, right? When you're like, oh, I I wasn't even thinking about it. But it's never far from your mind. But it does become farther from other people's minds. And in many ways for parents, I I think it's a sign of things going well, right? And I don't think it helps necessarily to remind them over and over again of the uncertainty. But I I think things that we can do are keep them updated. And sometimes those updates are real quick and really uneventful. And sometimes you can even say, I was really worried. And they might be like, what? Why? And you can just say because things can change. And so I'm always really grateful every time I get those results. The kind of times when we have surveillance are a natural point of just talking about it, giving updates without having to necessarily have conversations about it. For a lot of people, that's what makes the most sense because things are cruising along. If your kids are aware that there is uncertainty, that there is this possibility, and you're giving them updates, I say to parents, and you are doing your job and you're doing your job well. You can't force your kid to come to terms with, what it could mean in a visceral way, because that's something they have to do. And it's going to happen on their own timeline. And it oftentimes does not align with your timeline for when you would like to engage with them about it. So I I tell folks, if you're doing those two things and they seem like they're not too worried about it, or you feel like they don't get it, that's okay. I, I don't think there's a lot more you could be doing here. I think you're doing more than you're going above and beyond.
2: Did you have any specific recommendations for talking to kids or explaining NBC by ages, like under five, for example? If your kid's not
3: verbal yet, I mean, there's nothing to really say in terms of describing your diagnosis or anything else like that. But I think once, once your kids can communicate themselves, then that's when you have to at least be prepared to give some explanations. It becomes a lot more complicated the older they get But for kids under five, let's say like the kindergartners, the preschool and kindergartners, if your kid is old enough to notice changes, then they're old enough to hear at least some explanation for those changes. And how nuanced you want to be, I think depends a little bit on the kid. But by and large, I think parents can stay centered on the here and now. What's changing today? What is the reason for why something is different or why the routine is different? I do recommend that parents use the word cancer or in say breast cancer, for example, because at this age, they're so concrete, they don't know if you're talking about coronavirus or if you're talking about cancer. And and so just paying a a name so they can recognize a different kind of illness or sickness can be helpful, but really kind of anchoring it into the changes that they're going to see. And repetition is key. One of my kids likes to ask the same question over and over again, so... It doesn't mean they're not getting it. You know, for some kids, that's how they kind of work through stuff. This is the age group where it's important to just say out loud and put out there, this is not your fault. You, you did not do anything to cause this or make this worse. But I think it's important to let kids know that because this is the age that there's a tricky term is called magical thinking. They still believe in the tooth fairy. They can connect things that are not really connected in an egocentric way, in a healthy egocentric way of I did This so this must be the reason why my mom is sick, and so you can head that off a bit by just putting out there. As kids get older into the elementary school, grade school age, it can get a little harder because this is the age where I think kids really start to experience the full range of emotions, including all the hard ones like embarrassment and shame and disappointment and guilt and all those other ones, and so they're just starting to understand those feelings separate from the cancer, right? And that kind of needs to be considered. And again, I think repetition is really helpful. And again, I, I still recommend anchoring it in a good entryway point for starting any conversation as in relationship to changes that are happening or changes that are going to be happening quite soon. This is the age group where I think kids, because they are becoming more aware of not just their own emotions, but others, where you really have to actually be pretty explicit about saying, you can ask questions, you can ask me questions. And the part that I think we forget is to let them know that it's okay to show you how they feel about it and to reassure them that you're still going to love them, even if they get mad about it or sad about it or worried about it. Things like anticipatory anxiety. Some kids are just more prone to that or just bigger emotions. This is where. As parents, we can pay attention to that and just explicitly recognize that. And then if if you've got a kid who's more on the kind of anxious spectrum, then I think you can say exactly what you you said, Martha. I know this kind of news probably makes you feel worried, and I I understand why. And I, I want you to know that these are things that help me feel not as worried as you. There are very few shoulds in any of these, and these are just general things, right? It's so tempting to say, don't worry about it. And, you know, the spectrum of 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 worry and most people can tell you which side of that line they're on. And for someone who is a worrier or has a tendency to worry, we just know it doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult, like hearing don't worry, it's not helpful, right? It just it just makes you frustrated and feel invalidated because you're like, well, if it were that easy, I would have just stopped worrying. So I think that gets triggered in kids, too. And it comes from such a place of love. Like you, you don't want your kid to worry. You can say, I don't want you to worry because it makes me sad, or I don't want you to worry because I want you to know that I want you to have all, to do all the fun things that we do and not to have this be something, a big thing in your life. These are all the different ways that things are going to be the same. Like, these are all the different ways that I feel very reassured. The other thing that becomes really critical, as your kids get older You are no longer their only source of information. And what I tell my my patients is that if your kid is old enough to Google, then you need to just understand that at some point, it is highly likely that they are going to look for information on their own. And you have no idea what they're going to stumble upon. Unless they're going to be sitting there right there, you don't have a whole bunch of control over what they're going to put in there. And so, you want to head that off. And I think as I get older, you can say things like, you might hear or read about a lot of things about stage four cancer or metastatic breast cancer or what have you. I just want you to know that not everything you read on there is going to be true and not everything that you read is going to apply to me. So if there's something that you stumble upon or something you learn that makes you concerned, let me know. And I'm happy to talk with you about it. And just being okay with the fact that as your kids get, Older, they're going to increasingly turn to their peers for that emotional support and for talking about how they're coping or thinking about things. And that's hard as a parent, but it means having to let go of controlling a narrative to a certain extent and controlling what they hear and knowing how they're feeling about it. I will say that most kids, even under the most difficult of circumstances, do really well. And whatever we say or don't say or don't, how we broach it, it's important, but I think it's more important to recognize that kids are really resilient. And all of these research studies have shown that this is hard and tough emotions are part of that hardness, but more often than not, your kids are going to be okay. And that's because we're hardwired to be that way. And as long as they know that they're loved by you, then the rest is a little bit of details.
2: What about when a parent is really close to dying? Do you have any advice for, or thoughts on what should a parent do?
3: That is hard. I think to the extent possible that having other people who can have these conversations with your kids becomes even more critical. So that's one way that I think the conversation needs to change. For younger kids, it's so hard, but you have to get a lot more concrete about what that means in a way that you don't with older kids. Kids need to hear reassurance about their future and about the people who will be caring for them. Someone can say to their child, I know that this is going to be hard and I also know that you're going to be okay. And then you can say why and you can say that grandma and grandpa or dad or mom or whoever it is going to be is going to take really good care of you. And to whatever extent that someone can get through this part is talking about how how love is like forever. And, And that doesn't change.
1: Co-hosts Lisa Ladico and Martha Carlson speak to Morgan Livingstone and Amanda Celeste. Amanda Celeste is a former elementary teacher turned speech-language pathologist. In 2014, Amanda was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer, and in 2018 she was diagnosed with MBC. Amanda has made it her mission to advocate for the voiceless and the fallen, hoping to educate and bring awareness to the disease. Amanda is currently Project Life's Parent Coordinator, a Young Advocate and Leadership Volunteer for Living Beyond Breast Cancer, a Peer-to-Peer Leader for MetaVivor, a GRASS Patient Advocate, Patient Advocate for Program for Breast Cancer in Young Women, and she's the founder of Metastatica, Fighting Cancer Through Positivity. Morgan Livingstone is a Certified Child Specialist in Toronto, Ontario, Canada and is passionate supporter of children and families experiencing breast cancer for over 20 years. Morgan is the author of Talking to Kids About Metastatic Breast Cancer and Talking to Kids About Breast Cancer, a guide for parents, available through Rethink Breast Cancer Charity. Morgan co-authored all about the intensive care unit, how to prepare kids for an ICU visit with fellow child life specialist, Alexandria Friesen.
2: Important is it to a child's mental health to keep communication open? And how can you be honest?
5: It's a good question because I feel like everybody's so different in how they want to approach this with their kids. So there's many personalities, many preferences, of course. And those that are a little bit more fearful naturally might want to plan. Moms can, can say, This is difficult for me before we talk about it. So, I might be upset and I might cry a little bit and that's okay. And it's normal. Kind of broadcasting that all feelings are okay is a really good first step because some kids might not really want to talk about it. They might want to get the information and then go and play. So, for families that might be a little bit more sensitive and uncomfortable with the unknown about what's coming, I would say it's good to start with that. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm a little bit upset about this, but I want you to know. That if you have questions or we need to talk about what I might expect to face over the next few years in my treatment with this diagnosis, here's what I know so far. Check in with your kids. Do you want to do like a, a weekly chat or do you want to just in the moment? But my approach is really keep things simple. Give the kids the facts. This is what I know so far. This is what the plan is so far. And if I learn more or if I know more, I'll let you know.
2: So when you say check in with kids, do you mean ask them what they would prefer in terms of keeping those communication lines open? Absolutely. I mean, kids usually know what they want. So if we offer
5: a chance, you know, do you want to talk about this a little bit more? And instead, a child turns to you and says, actually, I just want to know what's for dinner. Then that's a good sign that right now they need to digest what you've explained to them and they'll come back to you when they have questions. So for a parent to broadcast, like I'm available I might not be excited to talk about this. I might be sad about this, or I might be sensitive about this, but that's okay. And I want you to be able to come to me or come to another family member. You can often identify a family member that is a good helper who's comfortable navigating and communicating about this. But I do love asking kids, what do you want right now? Do you feel like you want to talk about this right now, or do you need to have a little bit of playtime?
6: The age of the kid is really important because if you have kiddos that are younger, you're definitely going to handle it in more of a simplistic manner. And even when the kids are older or teens, adult children, you still maybe want to keep it simple, but it really varies on the ages, the stages. I guess the former elementary teacher in me always goes back to that Howard Gardner's different learning intelligences. Are they a visual learner? Are they a graphical learner? Do they need that kinesthetic are they a hugger? Are they not a hugger? So I know with our kids, they were at very different points. So the older two could write a little bit, you know, chicken scratch and stuff like that. This is how I'm feeling. The younger one, you know, she used a lot of emotion. She drew pictures. So it's really big, but we found working journals to be a really good way of that back and forth communication. So yeah, just every single day have like a little journaling prompt again, you know, like how are we feeling today? Or what color are you today? Just making it so that, okay, they are blue. Oh, why are you blue? Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're sad. Maybe they're thinking about like blueberries or like the blue sky. They want to go out and play. As soon as you try to do that push because you as an adult want to talk about it, it doesn't mean that they necessarily are ready to talk about it. So just going on those different self-cues. The journals have been a huge thing. We actually still use them to this day. Um, The girls, they have no qualms talking about it. Where my son, he's a little bit more hesitant to show his feelings. So by just writing it down and placing it in our kind of our little safe haven place opens up that communication for
0: him. On your perspective, is there a way, a universal way, no matter what the stage, the age, the gender, the developmental level of a person on how to explain metastatic breast cancer to children. There's always a universal way to explain it in
5: that sometimes cancer hides. Essentially, that's what I do because kids are like, my mom had treatment and everything was fine and we celebrated and mom rang that bell. And for kids, that's a great memory. That's something that they celebrated. And when we hear that something has changed, And there is metastases for kids that it's like a violation, but everything was fine. And now it's not. So for all children of all ages, I usually explain that cancer is very sneaky and that it does find ways to hide, even though it looked like absolutely everything was fine. It found a way to hide. And now it's here. And so we begin the next phase of treatment we have to be really careful with the words that we use and simplifying the language. We talk about sticking to the facts. We talk about simple language. And that really means communicating as simply as possible that the cancer is now in and you explain where the cancer has reared its ugly head. And this is how it's affecting me right now. But the plan going forward with the doctor is to treat that and to manage that. And these are the possible things that we plan to do. And so for children that are thinkers, they want to know more, right? They want information. They want to be able to understand this better. And for other kids, those more creative children, they want to know more the impact on mommy and who she is and how this will impact my life as a child. So does that mean you can't take me to swimming lessons, mom? Because that's often the thing that matters to a child is, okay, so this bad thing's happening to my mom, how is it going to impact my life? And what does this mean for us as a family? So breaking it down, open communication around what we can tell them, this is what I know for sure, the type of treatment I'm going to have is only going to be administered this many days a month, and I might feel these side effects, and we'll see how I do with the treatment and then the doctors and the nurses and I will decide what comes next. Most of the time, kids want to know the straight facts about whether that means surgery. Kids almost always want to know, Is this mean you're going to stay at the hospital? Does this mean you're going to have loss of a body part or something that will change your body again? And finding a way to communicate the possibilities while not predicting too much because we really don't know is my best advice for families. Especially for very young children, as Amanda mentioned, they're all different learners. And for very young children, knowing if there's something that's going to change the way you look or change the way you act or change the way you move is really important for them. And for older kids, are you going to die is usually the first question that comes up too. When they hear about metastatic disease and we know about cancer and the impact on many people, that question will often Come up right away. And it's okay to say that's not the plan right now.
6: Again, it's one of those things where I don't know if it's just kind of the elementary hat in me, in a sense, where we talk a lot about colors, just like before they leave the house when they wake up. Oh, what color are you right now? Oh, and purple what does purple mean? That could be, I'm tired or red. I'm angry. I don't want to get up right now. So just again, speaking their language in a ways where they can do that visual representation is really, really important. What we always did when the kiddos were a little bit younger, uh, we would take the month at a glance. We would put it on down, you know, oh, one child is all pink. One child is all blue, you know, highlighting on the calendar. Okay. Mom's just boring yellow. We go through and it's like, oh, look at, mommy's going to have to go to the hospital this day. And then I have to go this day. Again, okay, so how does that make you feel? So it just opens up the communication in a sense where if they want to discuss it a little bit more, if they don't, that's okay. Stickers are another great love language of all kiddos. Okay, so after mommy goes to the hospital this day, I'll be coming home. But I'm going to be feeling kind of poopy. So we take off the poop emoji stickers, put them on the calendar okay, mommy's not going to feel so great this day. So that way it alleviates that mother guilt or that parent guilt just a little bit from me. I know after those infusions, they are really going to knock me down for a couple days. So that means I can't necessarily be as active as I want to be or I can't necessarily be as involved as I want to be because mommy's going to feel like poop. So it's one of those things where they have that visual representation. They see, okay, so stickers is a huge thing. As silly as it is, Also desensitizing them to it is another huge thing. Prior to COVID and before my youngest uh, was in school full day, she would come to all my different injections. She was my little sidekick. But the nurses would let her touch the the gloves or the nurses would be like, oh, honey, can you hold this right here? So just showing them like, it's okay. This is a part of life. It's a sad part of life, but it shows that the doctors know what they're doing. The medical people are there to assist. So just walking through the motions, showing the emotions and just knowing when enough is enough. And even though you as an adult or you as a parent desperately want to make sure your kiddos are okay, just giving them time to digest. And we have really good relationships with their teachers, with different neighbors and that kind of stuff.
5: You really find your tribe and you just really become more of a cohesive glue. I think as an extension to Amanda, with the playfulness of that kind of under five age, Letting everyone know that play is probably the most important way that they cope. Stickers are the best. And oftentimes that's how children master a concept is through playing it out. So you might see the dollhouse or the stuffed animals going through different types of treatment and visiting the hospital in a very dramatic and fun way because that's how kids process the world around them. And similarly, with some of the families that I work with, if we want to signify that mom's having a difficult or more fragile day or more tired day is we'll make a special necklace that is like a broadcasting way without saying it. Like when mommy's wearing this necklace, it means I need you to be gentle with me today or patient with me today, whatever it might be, but to signify that um, she needs some space and some time to relax and heal and feel good. So those kinds of play-based opportunities and creative forms of um, communication are the best, especially since this age really loves to repeat everything and needs everything repeated to them multiple times in order to remember, not just put your boots on, but mom's having treatment today and I will need to rest. So we can't go to the park together, but our friends can take you to the park and that will be okay. I will see you when I've rested. So play is the universal language of all children and uh, really fostering that play through the poop emoji stickers and through creation of, you know, beautiful resources and fun stuff. And even mock hospital toys for their stuffies
0: to endure. When you're parenting a child who has some developmental delays or learning differences, how would you apply these messages of simplicity, stick with the facts, and so forth, and obviously developmental appropriateness, no matter who and how old and so forth for this child, what would you recommend? For children
5: with developmental delays or just learning differences, even communication differences, there are so many approaches. They often will want a visual repetition, of course, so visually showing. You can point at your body. You can use a, a body map or a picture to help children understand where your body is impacted and of course repetition still comes into play there and um, familiarizing children so developmental delays you're still going to be giving information you're just going to be giving it usually in a very repetitive way very simple way and for many children broadcasting i need gentle touches we do a lot of hand over hand and learning and education that way so modeling what you expect for children And, you know, if children with developmental delays are very sensory-based and sensory-focused, providing that sensory diet, when mommy can't have a hug right now because I need you to be gentle with me, you can hug your special pillow that we've created. And so a lot of the time we'll make a special pillow for children that need that deep, deep connection to mom in a physical way. But when mom needs space, we'll create a hug pillow or something special that, again, is jointly created together that allows them an opportunity to do that safely without hurting mom. But again, repetition is so important for young children. If you're not consistent, kids are looking for you to mix it up or to mess it up. And they want to know and trust that you're giving them all the information. And so consistency is key. And not getting tired of the repetition. So having those extra support people, like you said, Amanda, teachers, your tribe, your community, your friends, your family, to help step in if the repetition is wearing on a mom, to be able to say, it's my turn now. Mommy's going to have a break. First, we'll go to the park, and then we'll visit with mommy after her nap. So that simplification is really important. And just continuing to be consistent with your message.
2: I did want to talk a little bit about going on to other stages of kids' age, like starting with early elementary school age. How how do you start to change the messages?
5: At that school age years, like this kind of 7 to 11s, they are starting to understand very much so that death is permanent. So it can be really important for them to understand that um, They might be concerned about their own death or the impact of their loved one's death on their life. And it's really important to share information about possible changes to their appearance, like mom's appearance and her ability. Because, like I said, those functional things, like I need to know that mom will still be dropping me off at school. And as Amanda said, that isn't always the case. So your tribe becomes an important part of fulfilling All of those little tasks, who's going to take me to hockey practice, mom? Who's going to walk me to school? Who's going to make my favorite eggs? No one else can do it like you. And helping kids understand that at this time, these are the limitations, but it won't always be that way. I think that's always great to to clarify for the 7 to 11-year-olds is that we want to be able to, as a mom, to do all of these things. But right now, I need to focus on my health and wellness, and my love for you will never change. So that age needs the assurance that most of life will remain somewhat the same because of these wonderful people in our lives, and mom will be there as much as possible. I also think with this age, giving them the information, it's big, it can be scary. Some kids are going to need time to digest the information and the impact on their life. And these are funny times too when children might be upset about um, hair loss or mom being less able and might not want mom to come to the school with her awesome bald head that she's super proud of. So clarifying, you know, with their comfort level, we always want to assure kids too that nothing they did caused any of this to happen and um, they can't catch it like cold. There's a lot of information and broadcasting that we need to do to ensure that they understand that we are all in this together and that nothing they did caused
2: any of this to happen. Did you want to add anything, Amanda?
6: Yeah, the hair loss is a huge thing for sure. It is for everybody. So when I was going through it initially, my older two were at the the kindergarten preschool age. So bringing them into the bathroom and just being like, so mommy's going to get a new haircut. It's going to look like daddy's, which again, I think that desensitized it a lot since my husband shaves his head. So they kind of knew what they were going to be getting. Okay, we have different options. So I went to the the store and I called them my pirate hats. So we got some of those and we also had a wig because I didn't know what way I was going to navigate. So just showed showed them, let them touch it, let them put on the pirate hats, let them put on the wig, what do you think you would feel most comfortable with mommy wearing? Because mommy's hair is going to get shorter and shorter, shorter till it's going to look like daddy. So they gravitated towards my pirate hats just because the hair didn't look necessarily natural. And I was actually very thankful because that thing was so hot. They had some ownership in it to the comfort levels. So they knew like, okay, this is what I feel comfortable with. This is what I would like you to do. And then, Every single day, I would let them, okay, it's Monday. Braden gets to pick out mommy's pirate hat today. This is my outfit. Make sure it matches. Okay, Brooklyn, it's Tuesday. What pirate hat am I going to wear? So again, just letting them have that ownership, letting them feel more of a cohesive unit. And it really helped to bring up a lot of different conversations and to this day, it just, we still talk about different things like that. But just being okay with talking about uncomfortable things, I think is the most important. Do you
5: think, Morgan, that it changes as kids get older, like at middle school age? I'd never want to assume that it will change. The, the most important thing with kids is to not assume and really to ask them what they want. We can predict, but we can never really know unless we ask them and involve them in in some dialogue. So when kids get older, although they may seem mature, so they've got one foot in their teen years. And of course, when that happens, one foot in adulthood, right? Because they know everything and we know nothing. I would say typically they have a, a firm foot planted still in childhood. And a lot of what happens when a mom is diagnosed with breast cancer, not just metastatic breast cancer, but just breast cancer in general, often pull children back from the natural growth and development that they are experiencing, like wanting to spend more time with their peers and being away from the family. And this diagnosis pulls them back into the family, which really works against what they should be doing naturally in their development. So there are some kids who struggle with that, Martha, that at 11 years of age, And they want to be spending time with their friends and they want to be more independent and doing things on their own more, are pulled back into the family, whether it's helping with other siblings, whether it's feeling responsible and helping their mom. And we need to always be careful and aware of kids that want to become caregivers for their loved ones and making sure that we foster and nurture their normal, healthy development as kids, as well as giving them an opportunity to participate if they do want to provide some caregiving. And again, Some kids don't want to do that at all and just want to keep going with their friends and doing all the things that they were doing. But it's always best to talk to kids and never assume, ask questions. They may or may not give you more than one word answers, but
2: that's okay if that's all that they feel comfortable doing. Do you have advice on what you say to keep them on track for their development? How can you do that?
5: I'm a big fan of talking about it saying, I know that right now you really want to spend more time with your friends, but I need you to know that sometimes I need you to be here. I want to spend time with you and I, I really value our time together. So let's think of ways that we can be together that we're all excited about and interested in. And I think sometimes acknowledging that this sucks for all of us. And I think a 12-year-old needs to hear that. You feel the same way too there's so many extremes. Like I'm so optimistic. I'm going to be great. I'm going to focus on my wellness, but kids need to also know that this sucks too. And it can be harsh to say those words when you're trying to be so optimistic, but acknowledging the toughness in all of this, the stickiness of the feeling of needing your kids around you, but that you appreciate that he does that for you. I think it, It gives honor to this sticky situation that we're all in and that we are all going to make some changes right now so that we can all survive and thrive together while we face this.
2: What do you recommend saying to kids in high school?
5: Developmentally, we know they want to be with their friends or they want to be playing video games with their friends all around the world because with technology now, they can literally be connected to people all around the world. I also like us to always look for opportunities to spend time with them in different ways. So, if there's more than one teenager in my home, I like to say find a special connection that you have with each of your teens, whether it's thrifting, like going to vintage stores together and picking out like a cool, thrifty find, or whether it's getting your nails done, whatever it might be, but finding a way to connect with them in a different individualized way. Many moms that I have had the privilege and pleasure of working with that had teenagers in doing this commitment to spending time with them, even doing small trips just one-on-one with a teen can be an incredible part of the legacy building process when someone is living while they're dying. And we know that with metastatic disease, that can be a very long period of time right now. But all of these little wonderful opportunities that we take to spend time with our teens in a different way, not just sit down at the table. We're all having dinner tonight. We all appreciate that there are some teens that might have a more difficult time connecting with a parent. And sometimes the metastatic diagnosis can make that more complicated and more difficult. So saying, I want to spend this time with you, and I'm asking you to take time out of your life, your gaming, to be with me and to find these opportunities together to connect. So we can go get our nails done, or you can help me pick something else and then giving them a chance to to choose what it might be. I've also been really encouraging families to create positive touch opportunities. So this is like a back scratch or a head rub where you're physically connecting with your teen because right now I feel like so many teens are quite separate because of gaming and technology that they aren't always getting the hugs that they need and want and might not say, I need a hug. But if you can offer them a back scratch every night, that's like, before you head to bed, what's your day looking like tomorrow? And just give them a little back scratch or a head rub or even brush their hair, whatever it might be, but a physical connection that they didn't even realize they needed is something that I'm really encouraging families throughout this pandemic to do. Like almost like a touch vitamins.
0: Mm, Oh, I love that expression, Morgan. We all need our touch vitamins, Lord knows. You mentioned it, both of you, that sometimes we have to rely on the community. We have to rely on family members, but rely on friends if family members are far away or not able to do any of the caregiving that's needed, either for ourselves or for our children. It's super important to keep the messaging the same. But what do we tell these friends and family members and members of the community that include teachers, coaches, et cetera? about the NBC diagnosis and what to say to the kids. I definitely want to always say that
5: it's unfortunate, but a lot of very well-meaning friends will say the worst things. While you're pushing your child on a swing in the park, your wonderful neighbor who baked you brownies might walk over and say, like, my aunt had breast cancer and she died. And you're just like, thanks for that. So I usually do like damage control with kids before extended family and neighbors and friends are helping out, which is everybody feels different about breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. And just like you, everybody has different feelings. And so many people say and do things to share their thoughts and feelings with you. And I want you to know that you can always come to me if you have any questions, because sometimes people say weird things. It's okay. I always want kids to know that You can't control what other people say and do. And it's okay if someone says something that makes you uncomfortable for you to come and talk to mommy about it or to say to that person, this conversation isn't helpful right now and I don't feel comfortable.
6: I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I have a horrible poker face. So typically if people say things, you can, I guess, gauge from my reaction, how I feel about what they just said. I know a lot of people are very inquisitive when they have very good intentions. But like you said, Morgan, sometimes they can open their mouth and things come out that necessarily they want to retract or a lot of times they don't realize that they're even saying it. So a lot of times it's just, I know for me, it's important stop. We're done with this conversation. I appreciate the insight you're providing, but I'm not receptive to this right now. It's taken a lot of doing, but right now I just feel it's okay to just let the person know because if they don't know that they're saying something or acting in a way that's making you feel comfortable, I look at it as I'm saving the next person from that. <laughs> so it's the passing it forward in a sense. But I always tell the kids, I don't want you to use my diagnosis as a crutch. I don't want you to use this as a, oh, but my mom has cancer, so I can't do that. If anything, we want it to be the complete opposite. You're going to do that because mommy would want you to do that. I think it's important definitely to let the, the teachers, the people that have that immediate contact just letting people in. And that's one of the hardest things ever, just with being a private person myself. I don't like letting people know the daily struggles. I don't like having to explain stuff because then it ends up going down one rabbit hole and it might end up down another rabbit hole. I think it's okay definitely to have those conversations, but also be the advocate for yourself as well. I remember sitting down with Brooklyn. Okay, write down every single word like that, how you felt. Every single thing that she felt in that very moment. Okay, let's go outside. Okay, put it in the fire pit, just burn it. Okay, it's gone. We're not going to talk about it anymore. We don't need to have those emotions anymore. And now a lot of times we do the shred test and stuff like that, as opposed to doing fire because we don't want to create pyromaniacs over here. But yep, how are you feeling today? You have a bad word in your head that relates to the diagnosis write it down. Now let's shred it up, put it in the shredder. We're done with it. So just different
5: little tactics like that. And a lot of it is really about that person's discomfort with cancer and death. So when I'm talking to kids about the things that people might say, I will often say they're uncomfortable with the idea of someone having a diagnosis that we really don't know what's going to happen yet. And it, it's hard for people, so they will talk about it out loud and not even realize what they're saying.
2: Do both of you it, have any recommendations for resources like books or videos, not just for the parents, but also that could be shared with other people?
5: There's so many. I don't, and I don't even know how you would keep it up to date a list <laughs> of incredible and amazing and awesome resources. There's just so many. There's like definitely the resources that I've been working on and nurturing and creating over the last decade for Rethink Breast Cancer, which includes books for adults, but also videos for kids that are really kid-focused um, and magical and amazing and silly and fun while they're getting the information about what is breast cancer and what the treatments will include. But there are some new, almost more modern approaches to thinking and for very serious topics. There is a new... Well, newer book called Death is Stupid, and it's by Anastasia Higginbottom. And it really talks about the fact that I would say there's not a woman I know with metastatic disease that doesn't think death is stupid. We want to acknowledge that it can make us upset, it can make us sad, it can make us angry, the idea of someone we love dying. But there's really ingenious ways to approach talking about it with kids. So there's so much that I would hesitate to recommend a specific resource. But these incredibly positive ones like nowhere hair. So similar to Amanda's family's approach of having fun with hats and wigs and scarves. There's very rich lists of resources out there about what families can use to help children that are young and old navigate mom's breast cancer diagnosis. The books that talk about feelings are universal. That's my favorite way to talk about this is to talk about different feelings and that we all experience different feelings. You know, there's just so many great resources and some are focused on treatment and some are focused on feelings and they're all incredibly valuable because kids need to hear all of that. I always encourage teachers and parents and educators and anyone supporting children to have them mixed in with all the other books because it shouldn't be special just, okay, today we're going to talk about breast cancer. It should just be available all the time on the shelves for kids to learn and explore, which also helps normalize illness because it isn't something that we should be afraid to talk about with children. Children also get sick and it's okay for them to know that being sick can be incredibly empowering and it can also suck. We really wanna show children that there's a, a wide range of life experiences that they'll face. And maybe it'll be something fun and silly, like the silly dances and, and fun feelings and stuff. And other times it might be, I hurt my toe and and I had to go to the hospital.
0: What do you think, Morgan, is important when talking about fear and loss? I'm a big fan of being honest with kids.
5: So there are many women that that need to share. I am fearful about what's coming, but I want to focus on this part of treatment right now, and then this part of treatment. So acknowledging our own feelings and fears is really important because it gives kids permission to feel those feelings too. And some kids are very open about the fact that they're fearful of death and they might ask constantly. And I, I say this a lot, but there might be literally a morning question every day, like, good morning, mom. Are you going to die today for those young children? And you can say, "Not, I'm not planning on it today. But just a matter of fact, and you can clarify if anything changes in in my illness or in my health and wellness that I will let you know. But fear is important to acknowledge. I think all of us involved in cancer, metastatic or otherwise, are fearful. And it's okay for kids to know that feelings, fears and worries can weigh really heavily on kids. And to not have a forum or an opportunity to not only acknowledge that we all feel you know, worried and fearful at times during someone's metastatic period can put a damper on their ability to talk about it and imagine carrying that heavy weight of worry and fear with you all the time. The worry eater is a lovely little stuffy monster with a zippered mouth that you feed your worries to, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be a worry cup and every night we feed the cup our worries at the night before we go to bed just to get those worries off our chest. And I think modeling, sharing fears and worries is important for parents to be able to share and grandparents and caregivers and teachers and all of us to be able to show that Having a fear or a worry isn't a sign of weakness. It's a normal part of being a human. And it doesn't always have to be related to the cancer. So it might be, you know, I'm fearful of dying and, and I don't want to die. So I'm going to focus on my life right now and my wellness instead. Helps kids to understand. It's that scaffolded, you know, pathway that we can show them that we can talk about these vulnerabilities and these big feelings and fears, but still live a life. And if you can work that into uh, a somewhat of a routine, you'll get to those points like I'm really worried that our hockey team's not going to win tonight instead of it being about cancer. It's just a great way to model sharing feelings and that all of those feelings are normal and that it doesn't mean that we're not doing well or not coping if we have a fear about death or dying.
6: I think a lot of times too, kids, again, no matter what the age is, they look at their parent as be resilient, whether they have a diagnosis or not. They look at you as nothing's going bad is going to happen to you. You are so wise, you're strong, all these different things. And so bridging those fearful conversations, a lot of times have a lot of kickback, have a lot of, just a lot of anxiety stricken. So again, just Being open and honest, exactly like Morgan said, is so important. I know for us, we always did. We're slacking on it right now because of the different sporting events and stuff like that. But previously, we always had our family meeting, our team Celeste meetings. And, you know, so we'd all go, we sit down. And it didn't necessarily have to be like, what was your day about? My husband and I, we would put different little prompts inside of a jar. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about this. Fill in the blanks, especially for when the kids are little. I can't wait for this weekend because... And fill in the blank. So that way we found leading with more of the the positive opening. Normally that's when the negative or the fearfulness, that kind of stuff just naturally comes out. So it necessarily doesn't have to be a sit down, pulling out conversation about it. Kids need comfort. Again, no matter what stage or what age they're at, they need to know that they're, they're safe. They need to know that... They are going to be heard, but a lot of times it's a really difficult thing for them to bring up. So by bringing up different you know, prompts or bringing up different, tell me about this. And it doesn't have to be anything negative or anything revolving around cancer. But knowing and showing that there is open communication and it's fostered, I think it's definitely an important tool. Now, you know, our kids have no problems coming in. Guess what so-and-so did and this and this and this. Where we have the other kid, he needs a little bit more time. So it's just, again, knowing your children, knowing children in general. And um, it's important. And I really believe in my heart and hearts. If they are feeling discomfort or they feel fearful, it will come out. Necessarily not when you are ready for it, but when they're ready for it.
0: So what do you say to parents who are struggling with communication to children of any age, even young adult children, adult children even, when there's just a few months left to live, the parent is going into hospice, if they're so fortunate to be able to get to hospice. But within months of death, like a few months of death, how, how can and how should the conversation change?
5: I think that giving updates throughout the metastatic period, which is often very long, is helpful for families. But when we are at the end-of-life stage, there is almost a grieving process that begins before the death. Care can be provided in so many different ways. And talking to children about what you want as the individual who's living while they're dying ahead of time is usually my preference. So always talking to them. But I would say involving kids as best as possible in the dying process is my preferred approach because hopefully if we've been doing the right thing and we've been communicating all along, they'll feel comfortable and confident supporting their mom at the end stage and being comfortable with them as much as possible. But everyone's different. So moms might not want their children there. They might have a preference for something and grief and this anticipatory grief is normal and natural emotional process. And our reaction to a significant loss like this can really have so many different pathways. And I think being open-minded is really important and problem solving with your family, what everyone feels comfortable with. But ultimately, I do feel like listening to mom's decisions about what she would like don't always mean that's what's going to happen. So... In preparation for me to support families, I do talk about what death looks like. Most of the time, young children especially want to know what it looks like, what it sounds like. So it's dispelling myths and letting them know that there is a way that they can participate at whatever level they want. And respectfully, we'll do everything we can to honor those choices. So if a mom is declining and we know that it is death is imminent, usually the doctors and the nurses are really good at saying, okay, now is the time. If the children want to be here, we need to get them now. And we will move mountains if we can to have the children there. But I do also have a backup plan. So if it doesn't happen that we're able to go get you from school and that you're able to be here with mom, would you still like to be able to say goodbye even after the death? So there's a lot of planning that goes into place for a lot of unknowns. If we can bring you, then we'll all be there together and we'll be able to surround mom with love. But if we're not able to get to you in time or we're not able to ensure that you're there with mom when she dies, do you still want to see her after? And the legacy building process begins well, well before that. I, I definitely feel like we want to ensure that kids, even though they have a plan and maybe want to be present at the death, that it's okay if it doesn't work out that way. And it's okay if something happens suddenly. And they couldn't physically be present, that we all understand that it didn't mean that they didn't love their mom as much, or it didn't mean that we didn't try everything we could to have everybody there. So plan as best as you can and then have backup plans and then have permission to not have any of those plans work. Because sometimes that happens.
6: That's the hardest thing. Thinking about the preparation and the legacy building and such like that. Because each day is a legacy building to the step. And One thing I know that I have been a lot more mindful of is prepping. And that's one of the things that I never, ever thought. You never think that you're going to have to prepare for your death. But if it is one of those things where it's sudden and you don't necessarily have the access and stuff like that, I've been saving little things for my kids. So each one of my kids and even my husband, I have special little boxes that I have been like saving for them. If I have something where I'm like, you know what, I really, I want Madison to have that. I put it aside and I write notes to them and such like that, just to build up to that anticipatory, you know, like, okay, today is your 16th birthday. I hope I'm still here. If I'm not, you know, and just be a little bit more mindful and reflective and just think about their comfortability. Because out of my three children, I can tell you two are going to want to be there with me. The other one. He's going to want to, but he is not going to physically be able to. So it's doing things within their comfort levels, but also making sure that we're helping him with that mindfulness and that peace. So that way, even though one may not feel comfortable being in the room with mom, he's doing what is best for him and what he knows would be a-okay with mom. So just building little memories little memory boxes so that way you know they can have a piece of you or they can have different mm-hmm. items like that i really feel is important you know it mm-hmm. shouldn't necessarily be the tangible objects but i know for mm-hmm. my son being able to hold a rock that mom personally gave him over i can't be in that room but you know what i have this right here
0: mm-hmm. that just
6: speaks volumes
0: this may be a really, and you don't have to answer any of this, Amanda, but this is a very personal question. But given that you've just expressed that your son is probably someone who won't want to be seeing you in those last, in that last week, in those last days, does that mean that you won't do home hospice as a result because it may be more difficult for him?
6: It's a good question. I definitely know the setting in the hospital. I feel would not be a good fit for me personally. And I definitely know would not be a good fit for our family as a whole. I'm not going that route, but thinking about the family as a cohesive unit, our, our team Celeste. I know for me personally, home hospice is what I would prefer. And I know that's definitely what would be preferable for the family as well. Just giving anybody the opportunity to come and go. That way they're able to make decisions based on what they prefer or what they need And just giving, I guess, selfishly, me what I need to. And it's to be around the people that I love, not necessarily be around a bunch of beeping machines and only being allotted so many visitors per day.
2: Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you so much. That's such wonderful advice and thoughts.
0: This podcast was produced by Natalia Green and Lisa Laudico. The NBC and parenting series has been expertly steered by our wonderful podcast team members, Martha Carlson, Ashley Fernandez, and Linda Weatherby. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. And look for a new episode every week. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.